0: And teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What is your purpose in life? What is your driving objective in your life? You might say, well, it's 11 a.m. It's a little early for questions such as that, Brad, if you don't mind. But in all sincerity, what comes to mind when you think of that? Because for Paul, whose words you just read, that was a, a pretty easy question to answer. Whether at 11 a.m. or 6 a.m., he would answer the same thing every time. He would answer what we just read in verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. For Paul, his driving ambition in his life, his main goal was the glory of Jesus, that he would be known and honored and loved. It was to testify to the infinite value of Jesus, to have people know and experience that he is the greatest treasure on earth. It was an easy answer for Paul, and it was also an easy answer for someone else that I'd like us to talk about this morning. Again, being Missions Weekend, I felt it was appropriate in talking with Scott Um, to do a introduction to the life of a, a young woman named Ann Judson. Felt it was interesting to learn a bit from her example, and we decided this, or I proposed it even before, realizing that actually it's the name of James's eldest daughter named after Ann Judson, and so I felt particularly touched by that, because after realizing what this woman did and who she was, I wanted to change all my kids' names to Ann. Uh, even my son. Uh, he's not here right now, but he was this close to being Anne the second or whatever, and came, he came pretty close. Anne Jensen was the first North American woman missionary to the nations, and as we're going to find out, she has a legacy that impacts the church even today, every day. And as we explore her story, as we explore this text, we're going to see some clear ways of determining, and if Jesus is indeed your purpose. There's going to be some indicators that will help us answer the question, is his glory and his renown really the most important thing in my life? And some things that are going to show us, what happens when he becomes that most important thing in our life? Anne was born just before Christmas in 1789 in Bradford, Massachusetts, the youngest of five children. She was by all accounts a very lively, adventurous, cheerful, intelligent young woman who... She very popular in her youth and was invited to all the parties. She says in her journal she was one of the happiest people in the whole world. And then one day she was reading in the Bible and she came upon a verse in 1 Timothy chapter 5. The context of this verse is speaking to widows, but the Spirit used it to strike her powerfully. The verse says, she who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. And felt a knife in her heart through that. Penetrated right to her conscience, and in short time, after discovering more what it really meant for Jesus to be her Savior, she repented of her sins, placed her faith in Him to have her right and accepted before God. It changed her life. Not that long after, her church received visiting missionaries, and among these visiting missionaries was a young man by the name of Adoniram. Adoniram Judson shows up, and he, for him, it's love at first sight when he meets Anne. He is struck by her piety, by her zeal for the Lord. He writes a marriage proposal to her father. I mean, she was aware of this also, but (laughs) writes a marriage proposal to her father in keeping with the custom of the time. But it's unlike any marriage proposal you've ever heard. You might be familiar with some of these words because they've become quite famous. He addresses her father and says in the letter, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? That's a big ask. That is a very big ask. It would take a whole other sermon to talk about how many of us as parents would be willing to consent something like that and how many of us feel like our children belong maybe more to us than they actually do after many weeks of reflection and prayer Anne replies her father let her make her decision and Anne replied Dan and Iram and said I have come to the conclusion that I must spend my days in a foreign land I'm a creature of God and he has an undoubted right to do with me as seems good in his sight I know that no woman has, to my knowledge, ever left the shores of America to spend her life in foreign missions, nor do I yet know that I shall have a single female companion with me. But Jesus is faithful. His promises are precious. So whether I spend my days in India or America, I desire to spend them in the service of God. They were married shortly after. They bid a tearful farewell to their friends and family, and they embarked on the dangerous four-month journey to Burma what we now call Myanmar. Jesus was obviously, and Judson's purpose, to make of his glory and of his renown known throughout all the earth. It was her primary goal. Is it ours today? We're going to see in this text and in her story, there's three things that happen when the glory of Christ becomes the main goal in your life, the dominant ambition of your days. First, you get a new boldness in your life. Second of all, you get a new vulnerability in your life. And then, lastly, thirdly, you get new priorities in your life a new boldness, a new vulnerability, and new priorities. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Father, there's a danger anytime we explore the life of a sinful, fallen person like Anne. We can either put her too high on a pedestal and almost venerate her, or we can consider her life so great and so incredible that we can think ourselves so far as to be discouraged. Spirit, we pray that neither of those two would be our reaction this morning, but we would be inspired not just by Anne, but by the one who her life points to, that it would drive us to the cross and that it would drive us to the nations that are both across the nation and across the ocean, but also across the street, in the houses and businesses that we cross every day. So we ask, Spirit, that you would fill each one of us and speak to us, and that your word would change us even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Poor Anne was not made for ocean voyages. She was seasick pretty much the entire four months. Uh, They arrive in Burma, and their very first challenge, as you can imagine, is the language. They did not speak the Burmese language. They committed themselves to learning it 12 hours a day for two years. Eric and Valerie Nielsen are probably around there <laughs> in learning French in St. Jerome, Quebec right now. It was made all the harder, though, because at the time there were no existing dictionaries or grammars of the Burmese language in English, and so they had to make their own. And on top of it all, there were no words for God. There was no word for Jesus. These things were foreign in a Buddhist culture, and so it was quite challenging. But Adoniram and Anne were tremendous linguists. They were very, very gifted. And after two or three years, they were able to start writing and translating Adoniram wrote a grammar of the Burmese language that's still used even today, and for her part produced a catechism that explained the concepts of Christianity to people. She was very passionate about women's education. She helped found a school for women, and she promoted tirelessly girls' education. In 1818, a number of years after arriving there, they began evangelizing publicly for the first time. They went into a public space where discussion and sharing of ideas was common, and they Cried out to anyone who would listen, Ho! Everyone that thirsts for knowledge." And anyone that wanted to discuss was welcome. But usually when people heard the message they were sharing, they didn't stay for very long, because Anne and her husband bravely confronted the idols of the culture, unafraid of the consequences, very much like Paul in what we read. Twice it says that he did not shrink. In verse 20, you yourselves know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And then in verse 27, a bit later, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That expression, did not shrink, is a translation of the Greek word "hypostello," which means to hide something from fear. It's to avoid saying something from fear of what others might think or how they might react. And I find it incredible that Paul didn't struggle with hypostello because that's one of the things that characterizes my life and probably the lives of most of us here. We care way too much, and we are way too afraid of what people might think. And so if Paul didn't avoid saying anything from fear, that's not us. Maybe we see there's immoral practices going on at our workplace or dishonest business principles, and we want to say something to our boss, but we're so afraid of what he might think or what he might do to us. Someone that we really care about in our life, there's something that they're doing that is hurting them and they can't see it, but we're afraid of their reaction if we were to talk to them about it. Or maybe you have friends that you would love to come to know Jesus, but it's just so much easier to let our actions do the talking. You see, hypostello, this fear of how others will react, it defines us and it describes every day almost that we live. Why do we struggle with this so much? The Bible gives a pretty clear answer. The Bible explains that it comes down to what your purpose in life is. Because frankly, for many of us, our purpose in life is the approval and the acclaim and the acceptance of people around us. And so we can't sacrifice that, and so we give in the hypostello regularly. There's this brief insight during the ministry of Jesus. John, in chapter 12, he gives this little parenthesis where he explains that Many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. And then in one of those verses that is just a dagger in my own sinful heart, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John here is saying, and the Bible is saying, it depends on what your purpose in life is. If your purpose in life is to be accepted and loved, you will always struggle with hypostello. You will always struggle and shrink from saying what we ought to. But Paul and Anne, they didn't because they had a larger purpose. That doesn't mean it was always easy or that it was never difficult or that they enjoyed rejection and isolation. And you read journals that Anne wrote. Those first years and subsequent years were very, very hard. They didn't enjoy it, but they could endure it. Because the glory of Jesus, not the glory of man that they could get, was what was most important to them. There was something else Paul wasn't afraid of that we can often be, and it's saying those things that people don't want to hear in our culture today. In verse 21, it says that Paul called people to repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. He's describing conversion. The New Testament describes conversion as the two sides of the same coin. There's repentance, where we turn from our sinful ways and we change our mind and our actions. And that we place our trust and our confidence in Jesus instead of ourselves to be OK with God. And I think in our culture, it's relatively easy to talk about faith. I mean, it's still a weird concept for some people, but it's relatively easy, but at least faith is seen generally as a positive value, right? I mean, I've seen people with T-shirts, you know, have a little faith. I've yet to see a T-shirt saying, "Have a little repentance." I have yet I mean, maybe Georgetown's different, but I, I haven't come across that T-shirt yet. That is not as easy of a message to go over with people. And yet, you see, Paul, he didn't try to make the Christian message more palatable to the people of his era. But boy, are we ever tempted to do that, aren't we? Often, I think, honestly, I think it's with the best of intentions, right? We want people to meet Jesus. And so sometimes we downplay or we hide entirely aspects of the message of Jesus that might be difficult for our culture to accept what we're revealing when we do that is actually that what we're trusting in is our ability to persuade someone rather than God's ability to change someone. Right? We think we know what will really be the nail in the coffin and turn them off and so we don't say those things when maybe that's the very thing that God will use to convince somebody. This is why one of the reasons the Judson's ministry was so slow and took so long to see fruit because they didn't shrink from saying things that would turn people off. But what's amazing is when they finally did see fruit, it was fruit that lasted and persevered. Because you see, when we water down the truth, it makes it easier to see short-term results, but it's only the full truth that can guarantee long-term results. So the New Testament warns us to be careful with what material we build with. This metaphor of our ministry as a house, be careful what you build with, because we want it to last to the very end. So the ministry of the Judges was very, very slow in the beginning. But finally, six years after their arrival, the very first Burmese person decides or seems to decide to, to follow Jesus. A man by the name of Yu Shui Gung. the Myanmar people here can correct me later and get revenge for what I said on Scott. Yu Shui Gung, professor and leader of a group of intellectuals that were disillusioned with Buddhism, was drawn to this new faith. And he said at one point to an ironman to Anne. He said, after Adoniram asked him, do you believe these things? Yuxi and Gong responded, you've caught me now. I believe that Jesus suffered death, but I cannot believe he suffered the shameful death on the cross. But then remarkably, sometime later, through the work of God's spirit, he came back to Adoniram and Anne, and he said that he changed his mind. And then he said a sentence that I find incredibly said, I have been trusting in my own reason, not the word of God. I now believe the crucifixion of Christ because it is contained in scripture. I love that. I am very different than Mr. Shui Gong, in the sense that I'm not a Burmese man from the 1800s, in case you didn't notice. (laughs) But I have that in common with him and that is for sure. Trusting in my own reason. Evaluating the Bible according to what will make sense for me of us do that oh i can believe this this makes sense i can fit this in my categories but this no that needs to be i can't i can't believe that that doesn't make sense that doesn't fit with what people say today that's archaic thinking we've progressed beyond that mr shui and gong if he was here today he would say be careful brothers and sisters in trusting in your own reason believe rather because it is contained in the scriptures So when Jesus is the primary purpose in your life, you get a new boldness. But you also get a new vulnerability. And throughout her ministry, cried a lot. Because the things that she saw, female infanticide, the abuse of women that were treated as worth little more than animals in that culture, human slavery, a government that would routinely torture and massacre its own people. And the reality is if she would have just stayed at home, In Bradford, Massachusetts, she never would have encountered any of these things, right? Her ministry was filled with tears. And it's another one of those things that she had in common with Paul. Did you notice how many times it's repeated in the text that I read for us? The tears that he shed? In verse 19, I served the Lord with all humility and with tears. Verse 31, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And then in the very last verse, in verse 37... There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he'd spoken. They didn't think they'd see their friend again. Why? Paul says that he served the Lord with tears because just like Anne, he saw things that disturbed him and saddened him. He saw people rejecting Jesus. He saw Christians that were living in sin. He saw challenges in the local church in Ephesus. And for him, it broke his heart. This wasn't just, oh, this is gonna slow down my work and make my missionary newsletters home a little bit less exciting and encouraging. No, for him, he had a broken heart when he saw these things. Because when Jesus is your primary purpose, you care and you love what he cares about and what he loves, and you are deeply saddened when you see these things. And so be careful making Jesus the primary purpose of your life because it is to accept that you are going to have your heart broken again and again and again because of the bad decisions that people make. As people fall into sin, turn away from Jesus. Do you know, friends, the very best way to protect your heart and make sure none of this ever happens to you? Make sure Jesus is only one of many purposes in your life. Just keep Jesus as just one of many others. Beside work and my kids and my interests, keep them there and, and you'll be okay. You will not cry tears like this. You might be disappointed when these things happen, but it's it's not really your problem. Maybe that's subconsciously why some people, why some of us here refrain from getting too deeply involved in church because we don't want that burden. I have enough problems in my life right now as it is. I have enough sadness and difficulties. I don't need more. But here's the thing, my friends. Without tears, without tears in your ministry, you will likely do more harm than good. Let's look at Paul again, verse 31. Why did he cry tears? Verse 31 tells us that he admonished everyone with tears. What does it mean to admonish somebody? Well, it's to correct somebody, it's to exhort them, it's to see somebody doing something, thinking something that's not for their ultimate eternal good, and to show that to them. It's to speak truth. But he did it with tears, with love. He showed compassion and care for the person. If you were rebuked by Paul, whether you agreed with him or not, you would have felt that he loved you. Guaranteed. You would have felt that this person, if he was disappointed or hurt or even angry, it was because he loved you deeply to the point where he was crying. You see, Paul's ministry and his ministry, it was a ministry of truth and tears. And my friends, both are absolutely essential in life and in ministry. Because, you see, truth without tears is, is too harsh. It's, it's too brutal. It's too severe. It, it pushes people away. But then you see, tears without truth is too empty to actually help anybody. A person might feel loved and cared for, but they're no better off in their struggles or their problems. Some of you here, you are truth people. You love good, sound theology. You have no qualms at all about correcting someone when you see that they are an error in their life or in their beliefs. But sometimes you do it in a way that actually hardens people instead of softening them. And then when the person doesn't respond positively, you say, oh, it's because their heart is too hard. Maybe it's yours that's too hard. Let me ask you a hard question. When that takes place and someone doesn't listen to what you're sharing with them, are you more frustrated because the person is not listening to your arguments or because the person is not walking with Jesus. Paul and Anne loved the truth, but they also deeply loved people. Paul and Anne loved people more than they loved being right. That is not me too often. They loved people more than they loved being right, and we saw it in their tears. Some of you, you're, rather, you're, more, you're more tears people. You are full of compassion, God-given empathy. People love running to you when they have problems, when things are going hard. You are the first person they go to. But sometimes you can be so afraid of people thinking that you're judging them, you can feel very afraid of someone's reaction that you don't call them out on sin. You don't actually say maybe what they need to hear. You don't point out the areas in their life where they're not honoring Jesus in their words or in their actions. My friends, maybe this morning you need to consider if that's cowardly. If you're being cowardly, but hiding it by saying, no, it's because I love the person and they're just not ready to hear that yet and they just, what they need is real love tells the truth. The example I, I often give to our church is I say, if you find me, we, we live very close to one of the main subway stations in Montreal. If you find me and just, and, and just see me from afar near the subway station or our house flirting with another woman, and you don't say anything to me, you don't love me. What you really love is just not stirring the waters, right? If you really love me, you're going to say something You say, Brad, you know, you didn't know, but I, I saw you there last Thursday, and that's not cool, man. Like, and then hopefully I'll repent. And if not, we need you need to escalate things. But if you don't tell that to me, you don't love me, you certainly don't love my wife. Real love tells the truth, even to the point of tears. We see that in Paul's ministry. My dream for for our church, Eglise du Plateau, and for, for you here too, would be we would be churches of truth and of tears. And it is so essential. Because if we become churches of just truth, no one's gonna listen. We'll be just like people with the signs repent, the end is near, people drive by. But if we become a church that is only a church of tears, we won't help anybody. We won't make a difference in anybody's life. My dream is for people to say, outsiders, to say of Eglise du Plateau, to be able to say, those people, they don't compromise the truth. They don't hide the truth, even to the point where I'm offended sometimes. But they are so patient with my doubts. They're so so tender and full of love, even towards those who have different opinions than them. That'd be amazing. Paul and Anne remind us that if we live for Jesus as our primary purpose in life, we are going to cry and weep like Jesus and Paul. It makes you incredibly vulnerable. And I think it's one of the things that actually drives us to keep Jesus as one priority among others. After many years, the... Ministry of the Judgments began to bear fruit and to accelerate, but the next challenge was just on the horizon. In 1824, war sprang out between Burma and Great Britain, and even though he was American, they took Adoniram as a spy and they put him in jail. Some of the worst conditions you can imagine. Anne writes that the situation of the prisoners was distressing beyond description. There were above 100 prisoners shut up in one room, without a breath of air excepting from the cracks in the boards. I sometimes obtained permission to go to the door for five minutes when my heart sickened at the wretchedness exhibited. The prisoners from incessant perspiration and loss of appetite looked more like the dead than the living. And Anne went every day to visit and to take care, not just of her husband, but even of the other prisoners. With incredible courage, she didn't stop pleading to the governor of the town to release them, even though she... As a woman, didn't have rights to do this. She would not allow that to stop her. Unfortunately, it did nothing for some time, and Anne cried a lot of tears in that season of her life. Thirdly, and, and lastly, when Jesus is your primary purpose in life, it gives you new, brand new priorities. Adoniram was in jail for a year and a half before the war ends, and he's freed a non-Christian Englishman that was jailed with Irem at the time, he published in a Calcutta newspaper his thanks to Anne. He was so touched by what she did over these 18 months. He called her the ministering angel to the prisoners, and he said, overflowings of grateful feelings compels us to thank that amiable and humane woman who who, though living at a distance two miles from her prison, without any means of conveyance and very feeble in health, forgot her own comfort and infirmity, and visited us, cared for our needs, and contributed to alleviating our our misery. He was so touched by what she did. But unfortunately for the Judsons, it wasn't the end of their sufferings. In many ways, it was just the beginnings. Two of their closest missionary friends with them in Burma died of tuberculosis. Suddenly, they were completely alone. At one point, Anne fell deeply ill. So ill, she had to return home to America for treatment. But it was so far and so long by boat in those days that took two years for her to go back, to treatment, and then come. I and I missed her terribly, but by far their greatest suffering that they experienced in their life, by far their greatest trial, was the death of their son Roger at the age of 17 months. Anne wrote in her journal, death has entered our dwelling and made one of the happiest families wretched. Our little Roger, our only little darling boy, was three days ago laid in the silent grave. Short pain, short grief, dear babe, was thine. Now joy is eternal and divine. We do not feel a disposition to murmur or to inquire of our sovereign why he has done this. That last sentence strikes me as being quite faith-filled, but it's actually the sentence that she writes many months later that I find even more striking where she's able to say, I feel much more contented than I ever expected to be in such a situation. I think I do enjoy the promises of God in a higher degree than ever before and I've attained more true peace of mind and trust in the Savior. I read that and I said, how? How? It scares me to think what would happen to me if that were to happen to any one of my children. How do you survive something like that? Well, we get a hint in the words of Paul in verse 24. We get a hint that it's related to his priorities. New priorities that he hits from putting Jesus first. Paul said, I do not account, as I shared before, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry I received to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I do not account my life as precious. Think with me for a second. I do not account my life as precious. How can you say that? How can you say that you don't account your life as precious? How can you say you don't account your little darling boy, Roger's life, precious? The only way you could say something like that is if you found something more precious. Would you agree? That's the only way that that would work. If you have a $1,000 guitar or a $1,000 bike that you could get me for Christmas if you'd really like... A $1,000, $1,000 car is not really of great value, so that doesn't <laughs> extrapolate that way, but if you have a $1,000 bike, you cherish it. It's precious to you, right? What happens if for Christmas, someone actually gets you a $12,000 bike? Well, f- for me, my $1,000 bike is gonna be on Kijiji very quickly, because <laughs> I don't need it anymore. It's not precious to me anymore. Why? I found something more precious. I found something that relativizes what was precious before because it's so exceedingly precious. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I don't account my life as precious because I found something more precious. Jesus has become so precious and his glory and his beauty and his honor is so precious that everything else is less precious by comparison. Not that he hates his life, not that he hates everything else, but in comparison... Yeah? They are not precious in comparison. Anne survived and thrived in ministry afterwards because she had something more precious than even her little Roger. She lost one of the most precious things in her life when she lost her darling baby. But she did not lose the most precious thing. Now listen, I don't want to gloss over what she endured. Right? She did say, this has made one of the happiest families wretched. This was not an easy trial. This was a Situation, this was a loss that changed her forever. And yet not only did she survive, but she was even able to say essentially, bless the Lord, O my soul. I trust you, Lord. I know that you're good. I know that you love me. I know that you haven't abandoned me. One of the early church's foremost teachers and apologists was a man by the name of Justin Martyr. And he was famous for saying this one amazing pithy, Statement He said to his adversaries who would threaten him harm or destruction, He would say, You can kill us, but you can't hurt us. You can kill us, but you can't hurt us. You understand what He's saying? He's saying, You can't take the most precious thing. You can take all these other things, but you can't take the most precious thing. You can't really hurt us because you can't take Jesus from me and he is my most precious thing that's where Anne's courage comes from that's where Paul's boldness comes from I mean, we we all want to be more courageous we all want to be more bold but here's the reality as long as safety as long as comfort as long as the approval of others are the driving forces in our lives we never will be we'll never be you can pray God make me bold make me courageous but as long as these things are the biggest priorities nothing's going to happen But when you suddenly discover or suddenly rediscover Jesus and how precious he is, it relativizes other things and makes them losable. It makes it not easy, but it makes it possible to lose them and to go on in joy. For a lot of us, Jesus is our source of peace and comfort and hope. He is our example. He's our teacher. But would you say Jesus is precious to you? Would you, would you use that language? Is he precious to you? How does Jesus become precious to us in this way? Well, I remember a couple of years ago, a friend of mine from Morocco, his mother became very ill with cancer, and in Morocco, they are not privileged with the healthcare system we have here, and she had to pay for her cancer treatments out of her own pocket. They weren't a very wealthy family, so what they had to do, she had to sell her home in order to pay for her cancer treatments. And what was interesting was no one had to convince her to do this No one had to twist her arm. Please, would you sell your home instead of dying? Would you please, please? No, no, she did it very, very willingly. Was her home precious to her? Sure. She loved her house in Casablanca. Very much so. But when she discovered she had cancer, suddenly something else became infinitely more precious to her cancer treatments. Why? Because without them, she would die. Without those treatments, she would be dead. And without Jesus, every single one of us is dead. Even while we appear to live, we will be dead and dead forever. Because you see, all of us have a problem far worse than any cancer. All of us have a problem, and it is that God is just and perfect, and we are not. That is worse than any cancer possible. We might be pretty decent people for the most part, but not compared to God. And when we stand before him, as pretty decent people, we are in serious trouble and deserve his judgment and consequences for these actions. But you see, there's a remedy held out in the New Testament. We sang about it, we have prayed about it, and it's a remedy that's infinitely more costly than even the cancer treatments my friend's mom had to pay for. It's in verse 28. The only remedy, the high price that needed to be paid, The church of God, it's written, us, which Jesus bought with his own blood. The cost of this remedy, in order for God to forgive us, in order for God to not treat us as our sins deserve, Jesus was treated as our sins deserve. And his blood was shed and purchases for us forgiveness and right standing with God. This is how Jesus becomes precious to us when we realize that it's only by that blood that we have any hope of coming before God and having him to accept us and love us. That's how Jesus becomes more than merely our our, our source of hope, merely our source of peace and our example, which he is, but he is also and especially the only remedy without which we would die. And it's only to the degree that you discover that and feel that and acknowledge that that Jesus actually becomes precious. 13 years, only 13 years after arriving in Burma, Anne died from smallpox at the age of 37. Her very last words were uttered in Burmese, the language that she grew to love of the people that she grew to love. And after her death, a non-Christian government official paid tribute to her. We all feel deeply the loss of this excellent lady whose shortness of residence among us was yet sufficiently long to impress us with a deep sense of her worth and virtues. Her life was very short, and yet the legacy that she left was unfathomable. For over 200 years, her writings and her journals have inspired countless people to go overseas and take the gospel to people who have never heard it before. After her death, the schools for women that Anne had started continued, and continued to receive hundreds of young women. After her death, she had only seen five Burmese people through her ministry and Adoniram's ministry come to know Jesus. And yet after her and Adoniram's death, not too many years later, the fruit was much more. A completely translated Bible in Burmese, a hundred churches, 8,000 believers. How do we react when we hear a story like that? How do we react when we hear someone's life like that? Honestly, it makes me want to never take a vacation again. Uh, Who who am I to have a day off? Who am I to, look what she did. It's not the right reaction. Makes me feel incredibly guilty. I don't think that's the right reaction either. But it should drive us to ask questions about how we are living our lives, what our priorities actually are, and what they say about what we believe. Listen, God's call is different for each and every single one of us. And it's important to remind ourselves that God never gives the grace required to endure a trial before the trial comes. If God were to call me to a suffering, anything like that, I know he would give the grace to endure that. So we don't have to fear that. We don't have to live in fear that something like that is going to happen. But still, how do we respond to a life like Anne's, a life like Paul's. Well, we should ask ourselves the question, is Jesus and his glory and his kingdom the primary dominant goal in my life? Or is it just one of several? I think we should ask ourselves the question also, am I so afraid of suffering and of hardship and of pain that I am refusing God's call in my life? That I am not doing or even considering something that he may be leading me to do? And then lastly, and, and maybe especially, for the women here in this room today, and particularly the young women, you know, in a, in a church like this one, like ours, in a, a complementarian church where we believe that men and women are equal in worth and dignity and value before God, and yet called to different things in their roles in the church, I think it can be easy sometimes to look at things that maybe we can't do rather than all the things that we can do. My friends, I hope that you listen to Anne's life, and you are filled with ideas and dreams for how God can use you as a woman, as a young woman, to do unforgettable things for his kingdom. You know, when we're young, we hear, you can do anything you put your mind to. And you grow up and you realize, well, that's the biggest lie I've ever heard. That's not true at all. (laughs) And you get disillusioned. And I think even in church, we can just sort of sink into this idea that, well, I can't really do much of anything maybe even particularly as a woman, and shows us that that is not true. That you can actually do, by the Spirit of God, for the glory of God, a lasting impact. People people might not write books about it, but that doesn't mean that the impact is gonna echo for eternity. Let's pray together.